you know, for companies to truly become data-driven and usher into this new age uh, that everyone is talking about, uh, we need to raise those data literacy rates up to 70, 100%, just like literacy rates have enabled people to move from, let's say, agriculture into industry and into services professions. Okay, this is uh, Heia Framtiden, uh, the Swedish podcast on the uh, future with an optimistic approach. Um, I'm here at Quality Hotel Solna <laughs> in Stockholm, uh, together with Dan Sommer from uh, Click. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You have the uh, Data Revolution Tour here today uh, at the Conference Center. W- what is uh, the Data Revolution Tour to begin with? So the Data Revolution Tour is our way to go out, uh, and I believe it's been a tour in maybe 15, 20 different cities across the world to get our message out and our innovation out of what we've been doing, uh, what we're thinking around from a visionary perspective, but also what we're actually delivering. And uh, as far as I understand it, uh, Click uh, QLIK, was uh, founded in Sweden uh, in 1993. Can you describe how it started or you weren't here then obviously uh, <laughs> uh, but can you describe what you're doing now uh, with regards to how it started yes sure so yes that is correct click is actually a huge corporation um, in the range of well a couple of thousand employees uh, global footprint uh, today uh, and a leader in in data and analytics But uh, yes, it is very true. Uh, it stems from Lund originally, and uh, but very early in in the sort of cycle, uh, we moved to the U.S. and had the HQ in the United States because that's where the investors were. And then there was a an IPO in 2010, uh, and as a result of that. Um, Most of the operations have been in the U.S. Uh, from a marketing and executive uh, perspective, but uh, still the majority of R&D is in Lund, Sweden. So we often refer to ourselves as an American company uh, with a Swedish soul. <laughs> so many of the sort of typical Swedish values are, are sort of entrenched in the company culture. My particular role here is I head up the market intelligence team globally, which contains what I call the supply and demand axis and the macro and the micro axis. So the supply side is what are the other competitors doing? Uh, So I have a team that looks at, at competitive intelligence. The demand side is what do our customers want from us? Uh, the macro perspective is, I guess, very much harping to my background as a former Gartner analyst, Uh, really looking at where is the market heading? Uh, can we see the forest for the trees? Are we heading in the right direction as a company? Uh, and then ma- micro contains things like pricing strategy, for example. So I've got people looking at that as well. So that's my uh, my team and my role in the company. And could you say that your your actual product is a visualization tool to use for any, any source of data uh, to um, sort of make data-driven decisions in, in large corporations? I think that's a that's a good way to sum it up. Uh, we have um, essentially now we're getting slightly technical a self-contained architecture which essentially has the visualization layer, 
but it also has an engine underneath, uh, what we often refer to as the associative engine. And that's kind of the core of uh, what Click is and why we differentiate from other visualization tools. There are many out there. Uh, and it is because when you put data into that, then Click is really good at uh, sort of combining multiple data sets and put into this engine. Uh, or uh, access huge databases and, and index it, you can essentially not just do linear, what's often referred to as SQL queries, but you can light up the entire data state, uh, see what you searched for or what you filtered for, how that's related to other data points in your data set as well, and in other cases, uh, how it's not related. So, for example, uh, a sales guy in, in Norway you can see what he's sold, but also what he's not sold. Why didn't the sales guy in Norway sell more skateboards, for example? Uh, and that's something that you really struggle to find in other tools. It sounds simple, but that's at the core and still the core differentiation of Click, I would say. And that enables a very rich discovery paradigm uh, rather than just sort of visualizing data, if that makes sense. Okay, and you use some kind of artificial intelligence uh, engine as well in, in the background? That is correct. This has been really difficult for us to articulate for uh, a long time, uh, frankly, uh, since we've, we've started. We call it the power of green, white, and gray. But uh, Elif was here uh, at this conference as well. She heads up research. And we're adding more and more AI and machine learning capabilities to uh, that engine, essentially. And what that enables is then you have algorithms helping you uh, sort of look for data points that you would be interested in and providing what was just referred to as unknown unknowns, uh, i.e. stuff that you didn't even think about looking for. So you get that peripheral vision uh, with, let's say, algorithms supporting you in your analytical journey. And you're also part of uh, something called a data literacy project uh, together with other companies. How do you define data literacy and why is this important? So data literacy is, frankly, it's, it's our new mission statement um, <clears throat> because it is extremely important. Just like 100 years ago, people couldn't read and write uh, to a great extent. Uh, frankly, our world and data points to, in the early 1900s, global literacy rates were, I think, around 30%. And we've done a lot of studies around data literacy. And what that shows is that data literacy today is also around the same level, 30%. And we think that, you know, for companies to truly become data-driven and usher into this new age uh, that everyone is talking about, uh, we need to raise those data literacy rates up to 70 100%, just like literacy rates have enabled people to move from, let's say, agriculture into industry and into services professions. So what is then the definition of data literacy? Well, data literacy is the ability to read, work with, analyze, and argue with data. Uh, and if you think about what that is, it's essentially the information value chain that you see from reading in the data and having a critical lens to where the data comes from. That's critical in this world of fake news and information pollution that I often speak about, uh, where even good data can get polluted with bad data. Essentially being able to work and manipulate with very distributed data sets, because we know that data is everywhere and very distributed. So that's work with data. And then analyze that data, find the insights. And then the final piece is argue with data. That's actually two things in my world. 
One thing is you want to have an argumentation with the data. Like, do you trust this data point, this this outlier on the visualization? Is that something that is your next million dollar idea or is it instead something that is just a data quality error? So it's very important to always have a critical lens. Uh, but also argue with data in the aspect of being able to argue with data from the perspective of storytelling, like really getting those data points out there and, and embed it into your narrative is extremely important for data to spread more widely in organizations. And you, you uh, just came now from a panel discussion um, about data literacy. And you mentioned uh, that uh, for the younger generation now, they are digitally advanced, but they may not be data literate. Can you describe the difference? Indeed, I can. So um, we've done a huge survey with with decision makers and and professionals in in a bunch of different organizations. And that segmented uh, the population by different age groups. And what we, perhaps to our surprise, found was that very young people, I think the range was 16 to 24, uh, actually uh, considered themselves, self-diagnosed themselves as less data literate as some of the uh, the older people. From one perspective, it kind of makes sense, right? Because uh, you become more seasoned, you become more skilled. But from another perspective, this generation that has been born with with two feet into the digital world and are online pretty much 24 hours a day, it feels like, it's kind of surprising that they don't feel that they are data literate. My read of that is that uh, even though they are very sort of technically skilled, they don't always uh, have the critical uh, capabilities of questioning data. Uh, Maybe something that older generations have been really good at that sort of learn the scientific method in school and uh, and research methodologies, as well as really having a critical view of the world, like the 60s generation, right? Questioning everything and, and sort of wanting to do a new paradigm. And maybe I'm far-fetched, but they, they are better at the critical thinking aspect, but not so good at actually the technical skills of using, for example, visualization tools. So they, they, they complement each other from a, from a strength perspective. So how can you improve the data literacy? You you have something called a data literacy index you, that you provide to organizations. Yeah. So, um, well, there, the, the, we think that this is bigger than just companies. Uh, we think that it's a societal uh, imperative uh, that, that drives our mission, that makes people passionate to wake up every morning, wants to go work for Click. So therefore, we give away a lot of our IP. And this is that data literacy project uh, that you have uh, highlighted here. Uh, It's uh, dataliteracyproject.org. And you can go there and there's a consortium of partners there that uh, including Accenture, Click, Pluralsight, and I'm forgetting uh, a bunch of others, but uh, it's like-minded organizations that provide a bunch of resources so that people can become more skilled uh, in terms of reading uh, working with uh, arguing and, and, and analyzing data. Uh, but we also have, um, and I, we meet customers all the time, and they say, well, this is great. We really need to raise the data literacy in our organization. Can you help us? 
So as a result of that, we're increasingly building a data literacy program internally as well uh, to provide the best practices from like an organizational level on how to set up a data literacy program. We have training and education. Most of that we give away for free. It's kind of like a YouTube, if you like, for analytics. We can go and learn about correlation versus causation or hierarchies versus dimensions or signal versus noise and more advanced things as well that sort of refer to statistics. And you can go there and learn more uh, and become more data literate. And you you mentioned in in the panel discussion that you want organizations to open up the data sets more. Uh, And you talked about data activists. Uh, Why is this so important? Well, uh, to be honest with you, GDPR and very s- there are industries that are very sensitive where perhaps you have to take a more cautious approach like financial services and government, for example. But in general, uh, in the 10 years I was at Gartner and the five years I was at Click, what I've seen is that those organizations that tend to have a more trust-based approach to their associates where they have access to data sets, That's like the first step uh, to drive a data-driven culture in an organization. So really, IT should only lock down the most sensitive data sets. Let's say that makes your CFO go to prison if they come out. Uh, But in general, have a more, let's say, trust-based approach so that people can access data, start exploring in the data. So that's kind of a, a cultural mindset that's very important. Then I think it's very important, and this is where I mentioned activists, What I call activists are the people that are the most skilled in your organization when it comes to data. It could be your data scientists, it could be your data engineers, it could be your application developers. I think if you want to drive a data-driven culture, you have to lift them up. Uh, You have to put them on a pedestal and you have to show others that it's good for the career to be one of these activists. And those activists should be allowed to go in and innovate and break things, as I often call it, go in and and grab data from different parts of the organization and and really find interesting insights. Uh, If if you allow them to do that, of course, uh, responsibly, then more people in the organization will see that this is a good path forward in the organization and there's a lot of support for becoming data-driven they will want to become one as well. Because sometimes training isn't very sexy, but if you highlight the successes of the most skilled people in the organization, then that provides a kind of natural incentive for people to want to become more data-driven and start on their data literacy journey. Yeah, and your, your colleague, um, Elif, um, she mentioned that <clears throat> organizations that are more <laughs> data literate uh, actually add business value with 25%. I, I don't know how you came up with that. Yeah. So uh, actually, uh, that's a, it's, it's a very scientific and brilliant and long document that can be downloaded, at least the executive summary can be downloaded on that data literacy project. And essentially, we worked with Wharton University and IHS Market, uh, and they put their PhDs on this to look at a wide range of organizations. And I believe they went in and interviewed them as well, Uh, key decision makers in there. And uh, without sort of being an expert on the methodology in detail, they really looked at it from from three different approaches. One, how skilled are your people in your organization when it comes comes to data? Number two, how widespread is data uh, for decision making in your organization? 
And number three, where are the data-driven decisions made? Is it made on an executive level, on a middle management layer, or more like at the, from a bottom-up perspective? Because th that can vary. I've seen organizations where only the executives have access to the information, and I've seen organizations where the executives have no clue, but everyone in, at sort of the are very skilled at the, at the bottom of the organization, if you want to call it that. So that's kind of like the baseline of their methodology. Based on this, they looked at a, a huge number of corporations in different geographies, and in different industries, and they gave these organizations a corporate data literacy score. And through looking at that, they could derive that those organizations that had, uh, let's say, a, a, a data literacy score that was one standard deviation above the mean, well, they had better return on equity, they had... Uh, a three to five percent higher uh, enterprise valuations and a bunch of other success metrics as well. So there was a, a strong correlation for that, uh, which is an interesting first step. And of course, we could do more research on that. But it really does show that those organizations that take data seriously are often uh, better valued as well. Earlier this year, you participated in the uh, AI podcast called AI Podden in, in Swedish, where, where you talked about uh, a report you produced at Gartner, um, if we can talk about that, yeah, if it's okay. Where you said that uh, your conclusion was that regarding, um, regarding the future of work, quote, dream jobs would be the first to disappear, or not the first, but would be um, some of the first jobs to disappear. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit about what you meant by that? Yes, I can. And I have to qualify that with this, this research note was written in 2013, 14. So it's, 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 it doesn't sound like that long ago, but no one was speaking about AI at the time. No one was speaking about AI replacing jobs. So if there's one thing I'm proud of is it came out like before Brynjolfs and McAfee's second book, And and we really hit like a rich vein, which now is like in the zeitgeist and everyone is talking about it. So this was also the beginning of Watson, uh, for those of you that remember that with IBM. And there was a lot of talk around how, you know, it won in jeopardy and how AI is going to change the world. In that zeitgeist, we did what's called a maverick research note. And that's supposed to sort of debunk uh, conventional thinking, um, sort of extrapolate uh, different scenarios Uh, and and look at how uh, a trend can really affect the future, if you like. And in that, we yes, uh, sort of the, the whole basis of the note, I guess you could say, was that those jobs that are called often called dream jobs are the ones that will be replaced first because the cognitive capabilities of a machine that has been surprised with individuals can now be done uh, by, by AI. So, you know, three examples here would be Uh, the legal profession, it would be the medical profession, and it would be, what am I forgetting, uh, journalism as well, and traders, of course, right? And, and many of these, uh, at the time, they were still traders, trading floors, they're pretty much wiped out, like all of the biggest uh, investment firms have made them disappear, because it's all about algorithms right now. On the medical profession side, as I said, this was uh, the time of Watson. Uh, but what we see is, I mean, we were provocative saying that the, medi the medical expert would disappear. But the reality is that the medical expert can help a lot more people 
and source a lot of research from around the world very quickly and see correlations in that information. But uh, you know, we made that provocative prediction that that they would be replaced by by AI increasingly. In journalism, I mean, we already see plenty of tools that can write, for example, uh, uh, a sports uh, reference or, or what happened in a football game without any human being involved whatsoever. And the legal profession, there's a lot of software out there that is replacing a lot of especially junior associates, uh, especially in those worlds with common law, where you have to crawl through thousands of reports of precedents of what has happened previously in, in, in legal. Essentially, AI can do that better and more quickly than all of these junior associates. So I would say partially it's become true five years later, uh, but uh, not completely. So what's your best tip for making the world a better place? I don't know if you read it. Uh, Let me see if I can sort of articulate this clearly now because you put me on the spot. But um, Noel Yuval Hariri, you know, he's written Sapiens and all of these really great books. But what inspired me the most was a piece he put in The Atlantic that was called... um, Will computing lead to to tyranny or something like that? Um, I, I can't remember the exact title. What he was arguing is that information processing is most efficiently done if you put all of the data in one place. And increasingly, that is what's happening. We see countries... Uh, and companies fighting for more and more of your data. They lock that data down and they run AI algorithms on top of it. And because that sort of information processing is the most efficient, uh, many people argue that that will lead to tyranny because it's the most efficient information processing method rather than this more democratized, widespread approach, which eventually led to liberal democracy. And it led to liberal democracy because that was the most efficient means of processing information, much better than, for example, communism that was very top-down and the information got lost in the chain. Uh, So uh, I I think that's interesting. If we can find very distributed approaches of processing data and AI rather than putting it into a central place, uh, that would be huge uh, for society in general. And I would argue that uh, we're making some good headway there. Uh, For example, Gartner wrote a note that said uh, the edge will eat the cloud. Increasingly, we see these distributed clouds a possibility. And if that happens, then we don't have that sort of tyranny of having to put all of the information in one place, which, for example, large uh, countries are are utilizing and large companies are utilizing uh, at the expense of others. So basically the, the, the danger of some kind of monopoly situation. Yes, monopoly or oligopoly, uh, where, uh, I mean, countries can have access to all of your information. We already see this with the social credit score, for example. Uh, and uh, that, that is quite, quite worrisome. So if you can keep data distributed uh, in a better way, and I'm sure blockchain will play a big part of this as well, that will be absolutely critical for us to sort of secure our, our independence in the future. So decentralization is the key. Um, and you mentioned before we started with regards to uh, an optimistic future approach uh, that we need uh, to build new narratives. What, what do you mean by that? You know, we, we spoke about uh, read, work with, analyze, and argue with data. It just shows the power of storytelling. Right now, it feels like 
you know, Sweden, you, there used to be a very positive narrative about Sweden uh, for, for multiple years. And sometimes that was totally overblown and, and not sort of based in reality whatsoever. But the narrative is so powerful. You know, Sweden is this great country where no one is poor and yada, yada, yada. It became almost like a truism, even if it wasn't true. And now it feels like you're watching the news and it's just dystopia after dystopia, especially about what's going on in Sweden, because now there's like a new narrative forming, if you like, that uh, a lot of things are deteriorating in Sweden. And even if that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, the, I don't know, the framework or the connective tissue for this narrative has become so strong, it's really hard to break that down, even if the facts are kind of counter- arguing against that. So that's kind of the power of, let's say, the narratives in society, if you like. Yeah, so um, let's try to uh, reverse that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Do you have a reading tip or a podcast tip or a media tip? Yes, I do actually. Um, uh, at the moment, I'm I'm very inspired by by two podcasts in particular. So one is Waking Up with Sam Harris. So maybe a lot of people have given that advice. I don't know. He re- essentially brings together the 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 smartest people and the biggest ideas uh, from different parts of the world. It could be anything from the impact of AI to uh, identity politics and everything else. And he's kind of in between the left and right, so it feels like kind of like an object, objective observer as well. I find it uh, just very stimulating uh, when I go for my long walks to listen to him. And actually, I found recently an even better one, which is called uh, Dan Carlin's History, I think. And, well, I just listened to 15 hours of the uh, sort of uh, Second World War and how it uh, came about in the Pacific Rim. So it feels like, 50, like, like, like that's a long time, but I couldn't understand where the time went because he's such a brilliant narrator uh, and storyteller. Uh, so I can strongly recommend uh, Dan Carlin as well uh, to, to look at that. Great. Uh, who do you think I should interview in the hair front? Right. So here I'm kind of biased um, because, I, as I said, I worked at Gartner and there are some incredible thought leaders at Gartner, which I certainly have looked up to and gotten a lot of inspiration from. So two recent ones that uh, I consider both friends and and thought leaders are Dave Aaron and Frank Buitendijk. Uh, So Frank Buitendijk has written a lot about like dealing with dilemmas and ambiguity uh, and Dave Aaron about the emergence of sort of digital giants uh, in the space. And they have just an amazing way of sort of tying technology to bigger societal trends. Uh, so if, if they're ever in Sweden, which they often are, uh, I suggest that you would talk to them. They would be fantastic for your pod. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dan Sommer, for joining here from today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, please check out uh, click.com, Q-L-I-K.com for more information and uh, also the datalitercyproject.org for more information about that. Uh, This is Heja Framtiden. We are available on hejaframtiden.se. You can find everything you need to know. My name is Kishan von Essen. Thank you for listening.